Welcome to Rich Conversations. Today we'll chat with Matt Bones, who's a member of the experimental pop group Bone Lane. Fun fact, Matt's creative partner, Sammy Saab, was the very first guest on this podcast. During this conversation, we talked about his experience in Chicago, especially the music scene. I was really curious about that. And we, we even get into philosophy when I ask him about the books that have influenced him. It's a really great listen. I'm excited to share this with you. There have been four artists in my constant rotation musically since April. The Beatles, Harry Styles, Miami Horror, and Bone Lane. You gotta check them out. They make some really great music. You can follow them at Bone Lane and at Matt Bones DIY. Let's begin. All right. So today we have Matt Bones here. How's it going? And so actually the first episode of this podcast was Sammy Saab, who's yeah. one half of Bone Lane, which you are the other half. That's absolutely right, yeah. And we were going to do it in the studio, but but you got some drywall going up or something? I, well, I don't know. What version of the story do you want to hear? Is it a long <laughs> one? Because it's, yeah, yeah. We had a leak. Uh, some drywall had to get replaced. Okay. Long story short, this was the only time they could do it. So now we are, uh, we've commandeered our neighbor's apartment. Yeah, so we're in his neighbor's place right now. So don't compliment me on the decor. <laughs> compliment Sebastian. So how long have you lived in Chicago? Uh, Chicago proper since I was 18 I, uh, for college. But I've, I've lived within 40 miles of here my whole life, basically. So I grew up in like Bolingbrook, Naperville. Okay. Um, and my parents are kind of Chicago kids as well. My mom was born in Chicago. My dad was born in Warrenville. So, I mean, it's just the whole family's here. We don't have that. You know, I know a lot of families have to travel for the holidays. It's like everybody's everybody's in like St. Charles is like the furthest away, you know. So how did how did you and Sammy meet? Uh, Sammy went, he bounced around a lot more, but uh, we went to the same middle school. Okay. Met in a, in a home ec class for the first time. And then, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And didn't really, I mean, we didn't really talk to each other then. Uh, but then we kind of got, we have a mutual friend, Kyle Jackson, who was putting together a rock band. Okay. Uh, Sammy wanted to play bass. And I uh, could kind of do the falsetto Brian Johnson ACDC thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so that's what attracted Kyle to me is like, so I was supposed to be the vocalist. And then I ended up just being too nervous to do that in front of people yeah. when I was a seventh grader. Okay. Uh, so yeah, that was our first. Oh man, I can't. Even, I don't even know what year that would have been. Interesting. Two thousand eight or something. Two thousand eight. Like... And now you guys are in Albany Park. Describe Albany Park for listeners. Albany Park is. Uh, it's a very neighborhoody neighborhood by which i mean uh there's not a lot of like nightlife it feels very working class and residential um which is nice it's quiet uh and i don't know there's a nice balance of there's quiet but there's still stuff to do um but it's not you wouldn't go out probably in albany park you might go to the local bar or whatever Mm -hmm. um but you're not going to come here for dancing or something like that it's um i think don't quote me on this, but I read somewhere that it was the most ethnically diverse neighborhood in Chicago. So it's this yeah. massive neighborhood of 
all sorts of different immigrants and it's kind of fun to walk if you walk north from here you can kind of feel the different stripes as you okay. walk past restaurants and stuff like where we are now um there's a lot of like ecuadorian folks really yeah yeah I okay um i learned this because they had uh you know their equivalent of the fourth of july parade through here one time and everyone was wearing the same colors and i was like i don't what is this and i yeah, <laughs> found out massive ecuadorian population and then you go a couple blocks north um and it's mostly you'll see a lot of mediterranean restaurants and stuff like that like it's okay. a lot of middle eastern or kind of like people from the levant okay. um and then you get further north and it's mostly uh indian pakistani sort of thing so it's fun to, it's a cool place to tool around just yeah. because it's yeah it kind of changes and just people it feels like every time i'm over here there's always construction. There's construction everywhere in the city all right. the time. Yeah. But like here, it always seems like they're they're doing construction. Yeah. and it seems, uh, you know, you can tell the neighborhoods like healthily growing. Yeah, um, we've been here for like six or seven years, and it's it doesn't feel like it's blowing up in like an artificial way. Yeah, um, it, in like a real way. Yeah, like yeah. It's, like it's, mm-hmm. and there's it was kind of um, I don't know. It was like pretty crime heavy maybe a decade or so ago, you'll still see gasps of like gang activity and stuff like that. But that seems to have mostly mellowed out. Um, okay. That sort of thing. So yeah. Yeah. So if you have an open day, how do you choose to spend it? Uh, this might be kind of an unsatisfying answer because it's not very luxurious. Um, but I, I realized a while ago that like whenever... I don't know if you experienced anxiety much. Um, I don't. I don't have like anxiety issues, but just like low level anxiety can kind of kill productivity or yeah. just mood or whatever. Um, and I realized a long time ago that if I, I find that a lot of my anxiety is a symptom of just la- like leaving things unfinished, or there's mm-hmm. something I know I should be doing that I haven't gotten around to. Like, yeah, uh, you know, I should have filled out that tax form three months ago and it's just like sitting in a drawer somewhere and somewhere in the back, I'm not thinking about it consciously, but somewhere in the back of my mind, it's bothering me. Um, so I, a lot of my free days are what I call life admin where it's just like weird little bullshitty tasks, uh, that need to get done stuff like that. Um, interesting. mm -hmm. Wow. So that's something that's been on my mind. Uh, so I just moved in with, um, with Ken Ferguson and, and moving in, there's always like something new that I gotta take care of. Mm-hmm. And then once I finally complete it, there's like another thing yeah. that, that goes on my mind. And it's just like this never ending, like administrative yeah, yeah. task that I hate doing and I don't wanna do. And it's right. like, it's just always on my mind. And I like my temperament, just I enjoy solving problems. It's like okay. kind of a hobby is just like fixing shit or figuring out what's wrong with something or whatever and so like that again like i would sort of expect someone to say like oh i like to hang out on the beach on my free days but like i really enjoy kind of setting things straight or like improving things in a tiny way so that's see see, i don't like fixing things really i just want things to just work gotcha gotcha gotcha. so so like i've expressed my just well but that's the payoff i I enjoy the process though too it's not just but every time i'm trying to fix stuff i'm like Oh, I could be spending my time doing something else. Mm, or, for sure. Yeah. But. Well, I like figuring out how things work enough. Ooh. Ah. Nice. So we have this big clock. Nobody can see it on the... Uh, so you enjoy just on your on an open day, like 
just getting life administ- administrative tests completed. Yeah, isn't that strange? That's such an adult answer, too. Well, and I also yeah. like, in terms of fixing stuff, I like figuring out how stuff works. So a lot of the times, okay. like, part of the payoff of doing, like, we recently had uh, our drummer, Zach, bought a house recently. And okay. he had some crazy electrical problems where it's like you turn on this light switch and like a light switch on the other side of the house turns on and stuff like that. <laughs> nice. And he's like, hey, are you, can you like come help? Which yeah. sounds like a chore, but to me, that's my friend calling me and being like, hey, do you want to solve a puzzle? Really? You know what I mean? Yeah, I find stuff yeah. like that fascinating. Wow. Just root around the walls and <laughs> start unplugging stuff. Interesting. I bet, yeah, I haven't gotten that answer yet mm. on the podcast. There you go. So when you think of Chicago, what colors do you imagine first? Uh, black and orange. Black and orange. So this is October. It's not. Is it a Halloween? That could. Thing? It might just be. <laughs> I mean, we are sitting at an orange table. Yeah. Um, well, the black. I feel like I've got a handle on. That's like for a whole chunk of my childhood, the Sears Tower was like hugely identified with Chicago mm-hmm. because as a kid, like when you come to the city, well, you're not going to like go to the bars. Yeah. Um. So, like, the stuff that I would do with my parents was the very, like, touristy stuff. Mm-hmm. And especially when I was young, this would have been, like, late 90s. Sears Tower was still the tallest building in the world. People were hype about that. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I don't know. It has a very distinctive shade of, like, kind of ugly bluish black to it that feels like Chicago to me. I don't know. I know exactly what you're talking about with that, like, black with the Sears Tower. Yeah. And, like... It's kind of, like, sooty. You know what I mean? Yeah. It looks like stone almost more than it looks like metal to me. So why orange then? That was more of a knee-jerk reaction. I don't know. I think, <laughs> um, is the Chicago Fire's new logo orange? I think it's kind of orange looking, right? Is it? Have you seen it? It's very controversial. I don't know if you heard about this. It's they controversial? Well, well, they I rebranded think. and just a lot of people don't like it. And they had their old logo was like the Chicago Firefighters badge, yeah, I, I think. It. It always, so, I always thought it was a, yeah, like a... What do you call it? CFD? CFD, like, yeah, yeah. logo? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, so I think a lot of people were attached to it for that reason. And then yeah. they came out with this very, like, minimalist design. Okay. Which I think is cool, but a lot of people were bothered by. And for now, I don't know, for the last year since they came out with that, that now it just lives in my... I'm not even a soccer fan. It just lives in my head as, like, the Chicago insignia. Yeah. So I'm not sure what neurosis that is that I've picked up. But. <laughs> nice. So you've been here... How many years? Well, most of your life, but in the proper, you said how many years? 11 years, I guess. 11, wow. Um, yeah. What would you say your proudest moment as a Chicagoan is? Uh, well, I don't, I've been proud of the city before, for, but prouds, I, I always think proud is a strange word for something you didn't do. You know, like there was a great sense of pride. For instance, like when the Cubs won, won the World Series, that was such a crazy historical event that right. that has to be like one of the first things you think of when somebody asks that question yeah. is just having watched people like live and die, like their whole lives yeah. go by as Cub fans. And then finally to like be there for the moment that that happens for the city after 104 years or whatever yeah. was bonkers. Um, but that's also, I've proud, like I said, feels funny because I didn't do anything. I was just there. Yeah. Um, so I suppose there are two answers. Um, and I guess the other one is maybe just being a musician from Chicago, like kind of yeah. spreading the Chicago music gospel. Um, like it's, it's well known in other scenes you'll pick up as you tour more that Chicago is known for just having absolutely killing musicians. Like they're kind of, 
Chicagoans are sort of despised in LA because they show up and they suck up all the work. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's Wait, like, so tell me, tell me more. Tell me more about this. So, you, so you and Sammy, and and two other guys. You guys are in Bone Lane, mm-hmm. and you're touring across the country. Mm-hmm. What, what is that like? Because in a way, you're representing Chicago yeah. and and the music here that you've soaked up and and learned from. So Chicago has a reputation for music. Absolutely, yeah. And it's uh, the reverse is true, so I won't name any other cities that you go to, but it's just you go somewhere else and you're like, oh, these people are, you know, you go to a jazz jam or something like that and it's just nothing like being here and seeing, you know, there's just dozens, hundreds and hundreds of unbelievable musicians here. And it's way harder to find quality, especially like jazz jams, just hangs, that sort of thing in other yeah. cities. Same with the rock scene, although I've, I really haven't been involved in the rock scene in Chicago for a long time. But yeah, it's, I mean, the, it's, Chicago is just a murderer's row of musicians. It's ridiculous. Wow. It's so and it's, I mean, it has that reputation. It's like New Orleans yeah. or Chicago or New York all have this reputation as well. Like, it's deserved, you know, it's well yeah. earned. So is there ever like a, like Chicago, LA music? Is there kind of like a rivalry, or does Chicago have a rivalry with any city, music-wise, or not from the Chicagoans' perspective? Because nobody's trying to come here to do this thing. I mean, people come to Chicago yeah. to make music, but it doesn't. I don't think it's seen as rivalrous. Okay, it's more just hey, there's more people to play with. In LA, it's such music is much more of an industry and an economy in LA, and so okay. I, when people show up, it may shrink the pool of work that you could get. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. Um, and I mean, it's a different scene too because LA musicians are all session cats, which is kind of a it's a different gig than playing live or touring. What do you mean? Oh, session cats. So they're sitting mm-hmm. in on recordings and yeah, and... Um, yeah. So they play on records and stuff like that, which is it's a different skill set because it's. I mean, the main difference is. Well, there's like weird idiosyncrasies of recording. Like you have to be good playing to a click track or something, which takes. Um, you know, most drummers worth their salt can do, but it, that takes a while to get really, really good at. And just kind of the the flow of how a session works and understanding what different terminology means and stuff like that. But it's also uh, pretty much everything is sight read. So if you're recording a string section, you bring the parts, give them to the string section. That's the first time they've ever seen this piece of music. Mm-hmm. And you go one, two, three, four, and they have to play the whole thing end to end. And like, there's a lot of editing involved as mm-hmm. well, but it's just, that's a very particular skill set is being able to do that. Like wow. now play that perfectly now, you know, I'm just curious about the music scene here in Chicago and how like your involvement in it, you have been participating in it. What's something that someone on the outside wouldn't know about the Chicago music scene? That's a good question. Uh, it's it's um, I don't want to use the word clicky because that makes it sound like um, people aren't talking to each other. But there are kind of pockets of musicians, okay, and that's very much determined by um, well, either what music school you went to or if you didn't go to music school um so there are like there's kind of a venn diagram where there's like a center of gravity is one of the circles and that's depaul conservatory and then one is roosevelt one is columbia and so you'll notice a lot of um a lot of like big band stuff a lot of um I guess everybody's kind of in on the jobbing scene, but I don't know. There are kind of like flavors 
of musician that comes out really? of each of those camps. Yeah, a lot of the more accomplished, like classical players, like for instance, Columbia, who I love and work for. So this is no, this is not an insult. Um, doesn't really put out classical players much. Okay. So most of the classical players are either DePaul or Roosevelt. Um, Columbia is the only one of those schools that has a really developed pop music program. So mm. a lot of the like young artists like young hip artists um are columbia any anything with kind of a neo soul flavor or like okay you know all the people chance worked with are all columbia cats so that has that like very particular sound if you know what i mean got you um and then yeah roosevelt tends to lean classical musical theater that sort of thing um so and again the groups are all amiable yeah and then there's uh you know like the blues musicians that's not uh, you know, there's no college associated with that. Mm-hmm. That's just like churches. Um, a lot of people grow out of the gospel scene because playing gospel is incredibly technically difficult. Like, there's a phrase that's gospel oh, really? chops, which just means gospel a drummer chops. who can like play his ass off. Yeah, yeah, really fast. Really? And really technical stuff. Mm-hmm. So, the Chicago music scene is really expansive. Yeah, but it's it's just interesting that there's kind of cat- categories, again, is too strong. It's just yeah. like kind of lumps of people who associate wow. with each other um and yeah i don't mean it's not rivalrous or anything like that yeah, but they're kind of distinct um and it's i don't know it's fun to be involved that's awesome yeah describe your favorite restaurant in chicago uh my favorite restaurant is i'm kind of a creature of habit and so i like places that will like i know what i'm getting it's not I, i'm kind of like i enjoy yeah. i'm i can do the foodie thing it's not my everyday yeah um, but so my old standby is Brasa Roja, which is just a couple blocks away from here. It's a Colombian rotisserie chicken place. And it's what's just it called? Brasa Roja. Okay. Um, yeah, huge. They've got like a huge steel rotisserie in there. Uh, and it's just, I don't know. I, I enjoy simple things done really well, yeah. you know? So it's just like the dishes are just like rice, beans, lettuce, onions, chicken, steak maybe it's all kind of amalgamations of the same Mm. couple ingredients but it's just done unbelievably well uh it's totally reasonably priced the people are extraordinarily nice the coffee is unbelievable oh yeah they're bizarrely proud of i guess it's a colombian restaurant it makes sense yeah like they're so excited about their coffee it's awesome really Mm -hmm. oh i'll have to to go there and try as someone who enjoys coffee yeah absolutely and it's the kind of place where you can kind of get to know the staff too it's the same people there for years and years so yeah, oh, Nestor cool. is my guy. He's always Nestor. Yeah, yeah. Nice. He's the guy who's excited about coffee. Nice. So, what's your hidden gem in the city? Hidden gem in the city. Um, there. Uh, this is more a category than an actual place. Uh, okay. But I've noticed somebody pointed one out. I mean, the one that's local here is is a place called Jensen Park, which is this tiny, tiny little park. It's like less than a city block. Um, and somebody pointed this out to me. I had to meet up with one of my friends during like the beginning of lockdown. And so it was okay. like, all right, we're doing this fully outside. Like we're going to be wearing masks 20 feet away outside, you know? Um, and they're like, we could go to Horner park, which is down here and it's beautiful. Uh, yeah. or there's this place called Jensen park right by your place, which I'd never heard of. And okay. it's this tiny little park. That's like, it's like half a block, you know, it's ridiculously small. Mm-hmm. And I just, I started noticing that there's a lot of these in the city. Once I'd kind of been to one and was like, okay. I'd, walk past this place every day and it never even registered on my radar is it like one of those uh like playground parks it's um 
it's half a block is bigger in Chicago than you would expect when it's all laid out, okay. you know, when it's all out in front of you. But so it's there is a playground area for kids. There's a baseball diamond. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and then there's it's just good. a huge field, um, okay. and like a couple of walkways and stuff like that. But yeah, but I've noticed there's a ton of those if you kind of know where to. They're like tucked in between apartment buildings. So and Jensen stuff. Jensen Park, mm-hmm. and there's Ooh. all yeah, there's all these tiny little hidden. I don't Spots know. All yeah, around, once yeah. I it was like once my eyes were open to the fact that these things existed. There's a ton just tucked in between apartment buildings, and some some don't even look public necessarily. Okay. Um, but yeah, they are. It's cool. We got a nice clock here. That's it's pleasant. It's pleasant. Spooky Halloween. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, what sound do you most affiliate with Chicago? Um, the the obnoxiously loud L yeah, was because uh, when I first moved here I didn't you know I didn't have a car I was broke and they give you the U-pass thing when you're a university student here so that's you know you'd spend like three or four hours of your day on the L and then for a while I don't this probably looking back this seems like it was dangerous probably but I used to get a kick out of um, walking through the alleys and stuff under the L rather than on the streets on my way yeah. to and from places. And it was just kind of a coincidence of the places I lived. Like, yeah. I happened to live right by the L uh, in Lincoln Park, about a mile north of Fullerton, which is right on the L. And so yeah. it was like, that was kind of the straightest shot, mm-hmm. was to just walk under that vein on the way to the school. Yeah. You know, and then everybody's had the experience of walking under the L, and you're just like, oh, like, how... I've never heard anything this loud before. Yeah, and you have to... Cover your ears, and you got yeah. like the sparks coming down. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and then I've gotten to play around with that. Um, I've done like sound, like audio editing for a couple short films that take place in Chicago. Okay. I, you know, you end up down there with like a a boom mic in an alley, and so I don't know. That's yeah, that's the thing that sticks out. Is there somewhere where you can just like buy an audio track of the Chicago L? Or there has to be, I'm sure. Um, the ones. Part of this was just I wanted the experience of doing field recording and stuff. Okay. Um, so I have a stereo field recorder that I can take places. And it seemed like... I knew I needed the interior of the L. Um, sorry, I'll tell you a little about the project. Uh, it's uh, our buddy Dan Canvas, who's a very talented uh, musician yeah, and yeah. filmmaker, made yeah. this thing. Um, and a lot of it... The premise was basically he had seen a girl on the L and kind of instantly fell in love. And it was this yeah. kind of... You know, it's not like they ended up dating at the end. It was just this kind of, this moment of, like, interest mm. and, like, these two, like, smiling at each other and then interspersed with other things going on in his life. But that was the part that took place on the L. So I okay. knew I needed very specific, like, interior sounds of the L. I knew I she needed to get off at this exit for continuity to work, so I needed to oh. get them saying, like, doors open on the right at Harrison or something like yeah. that. So it made more sense just to go record it all on my own. Right. And then while you're while you're inside the train you might as well step outside the train and get the same yeah you know get the outside noise so i'm yeah i'm certain there's a sound library where you could find that um but i don't know it was a fun field trip what music has influenced you most during your time in the city the easy easy question we lived um so this i've lived with sammy pretty much the whole time i've lived in chicago so when i say we i mean sam and i uh yeah you two are are like intertwined yeah yeah we call it our unconsummated gay marriage yeah um we lived two blocks away from a place called kingston mines which is this legendary blues club in lincoln park and uh i mean you know it well of course um and we happened to go to high school with some of the family that owns that place okay 
And so we knew the door guy and we knew one of the bartenders are like sophomore and junior years of college. And so we would get in for free and drink for, if not free, heavily <laughs> reduced. And so, of course, we were there like every Thursday, Friday, every uh, week for a year and a half or something like that. Uh, and it's strange because you don't listen to Bone Lang and say like, ah, oh, that's a very bluesy band. Right. But something I, and I'll never really be able to put my finger on it, I don't think, but like just the vibes of that place and the amount of uh, experimentation and fun that the musicians were having on stage yeah. sunk in. Uh, and that, like the drummers are crushing too. Those are all gospel cats. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And so like I think a lot of the rhythms work their way into Bone Lang, so not like the guitar riffs or anything like yeah. that, although I kind of play bluesy naturally. But yeah, like uh, I think a lot of the rhythms of that place kind of worm the way into the bone length stuff so. that's cool I, I would not have known that. yeah but yeah like i said easy answer that's number one for sure so what what are you excited to experience again in the city again i feel like it's kind of a pedestrian answer because it's not like uh the raves or whatever <laughs> but it's like i really just it's weird because the COVID thing is kind of overlapping with winter in a horrible way where it's yeah. like you used to, the release was kind of like, Oh, I'll go to the park, go for a walk or mm-hmm. whatever. And now it's like, that's done too. Yeah. So I miss, I really miss just having places to go, uh, at night when I'm at night. bored. Yeah. Yeah. You Cause mean I mean, like, those like are the times parks you get, and stuff or like, like bars and, um, yeah, I was going to say like bars and movie theaters are the two that okay. I really miss because those are the like alright I've been working all day I'm in my head um, gotta get out I'm just restless and yeah you can only pace the same 40 feet of yeah. your apartment so many times before it's like alright I gotta like go you know intake something new at the movie theater or just like get some of the evil out at the bar or whatever so man I just miss <laughs> yeah what do you think it will be like in the winter I think it's going to be horrible. It actually, one upside I realized is that we're not going to have to commute nearly as much. Like every, yeah, most of the time, the worst part about winter is if you're going to work, mm-hmm. it's like 90 minutes from out your door, you're shivering your ass off. You get on the train, it's still pretty cold on the train. You get to work, finally get to warm up. It's just like those three hours don't exist anymore for a lot of people because they're working at home. So I don't, getting out of the house less, I'm hesitant to say that that's a good thing, but it's we'll have to deal with less cold i guess yeah yeah they'll be i mean that's gonna it's gonna be really interesting um it's open a lot more now the city compared mm-hmm. to you know like when it first shut down and right and everything and it was, it was really cold and gloomy those when it was it's pretty brutal those were like like the quarantine like early like days first, too early days of COVID. so freaked out i mean i know it's touch and go now but i just you know the panic and like the food yeah. shortages of yeah stuff, like jesus christ the um and it's going to depend too on like I, nobody really knows what this what this ending looks like if it ever ends or whatever but yeah. you know there's a there's a chance there's like a vaccine before the end of the winter so that would totally change the dynamic too i, I have no idea i'm not holding my breath at all but yeah, we'll find out. It just depends on the course of events here, sort of. If you were given secret information that Chicago would be destroyed in one week, what's one quality you'd choose to keep to rebuild the city? Well, I mean, Chicago has been destroyed before. And so I feel like that... I know none of the same people are alive or whatever, but yeah. Chicago feels very resilient in that way. Or, like, mm-hmm. the people who are in Chicago are staying in Chicago. It's kind of like... I remember... 
um, when Katrina happened for a while, uh, like we had exchange students, sort of. Okay. Or like, I guess refugees is a better word, where they were like couldn't go home, and so they like ended up somehow in Naperville or whatever. Um, and I remember hearing a lot of people being asked the question like are you going to go back why would you go back this keeps happening that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and it's just like people from new orleans are from new orleans that's their home they're staying there right and so i think that's they have kind of a similar vibe there where it's like chicagoans are chicagoans chicagoans are just going to stay and rebuild so i guess resiliency is really the answer which is the perfect yeah (laughs) characteristic for a disaster i suppose yeah but yeah i think it's built in and i it's not like i wouldn't worry about the city being destroyed but uh, it's you know, the people seem like they could probably handle something like that if they absolutely had to. Probably on a similar note, how do people respond when when they learn you're from Chicago? And how do you, how do you... Yeah, it's... It used... Well, it depends if you're in the United States or not. Um, if you're in the U.S. and then abroad. Yeah, so, I mean, sports are the big one here. And even abroad, like, Michael Jordan was always... When I was younger, especially. Yeah. Um... Michael Jordan was the one they pull out. So abroad, it's usually celebrities. It's like Michael Jordan, Oprah, Obama are the three. And then, let's see. I haven't really thought about how people feel about it here. It's, I mean, there's a sad answer, which is um, the murder rate, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. is a huge part of a reputation. Uh, which is true, but that's a weird one because when people bring that up, you're worried they're going to be like afraid to visit mm-hmm. or something like that. Which I mean, it, it, the crime rate's insane here, but it's just like if you're no, you know, don't yeah. visit the places where the murder rate is crazy. Yeah. Like this is easy to plan your vacation. No one's right. getting shot at the bean sort of thing. Like there's yeah. you can figure this out. Um, so I think it's a shame because I think people probably pass uh, the city up for tourism for that reason. Yeah, I could see that too. Yeah, and uh, I mean the music thing, but that's because we hang out with musicians all the time. They just know Chicago's killing. Yeah, it's a good yeah. time. It's a good time. Yeah, I prefer that uh, reputational mark. So when you feel overwhelmed or in need of a mental escape, but you can't leave the city, where do you go to clear your mind? Uh, well, like we were saying, I guess the park is the best place I have at the moment. Uh, yeah. And I'm in a weird spot now because, like I said, it was close. Like, the other day, I just had to get out of the house and, like, walk around. But it was it's starting to get... It was, like, 45 out or something like that. So I was like, okay. the park is not going to be a fun, you know, hour. <laughs> no. Like, you, it, it'll be tolerable for 10 minutes or whatever. Yeah. And so I ended up just walking around Home Depot. <laughs> Home Depot? Because it's huge. And I yeah. like to pace. And there's cool stuff to look at or, like, come up with ideas yeah. or whatever. So I don't really... I don't have a good escape right now, unfortunately. You'll, um, you'll come up with something. Yeah, the best I have is Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's your schedule look like? Like, because you and Bo, you and uh, Sammy are in the studio. Mm-hmm. What What is your typical like week look like? Uh, changes a bunch. We try and leave it pretty flexible. It's more we we're pretty good at beating ourselves up if we don't work enough. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah. we don't really need to keep ourselves or each other to a clock or anything like that. So, we've yeah. got set stuff. Um, like, I'm teaching now on Monday and Wednesday morning, and then I, I usually kind of dog ear a good chunk of that day to do, like, creating or whatever after class is over. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it's just kind of like, it's a bit of a free-for-all, honestly. Yeah. And I think my mornings are the most scheduled out. Uh, like, that's 
I kind of have a routine thing, like get up, work out, and then on certain days, I've got like my week planned out basically where it's like, what's, what's your routine like, your morning routine? Sure. So, uh, it's get up, work out anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour, depending on what I'm doing. And then I usually have, I like learn best in the morning and I can pay attention best in the morning. Um, cause music burns you out pretty fast. So I try and get all like new information intake in, in the uh, morning. so I'll like, yeah, I'll, like work out and then like shower, eat. So that's, so like workout seven to eight shower, eat somewhere between eight and nine. And then somewhere in there I'll start like right now I'm doing, um, I've kind of got to up my game as far as mixing, okay. uh, just because our mix engineer is busy. There's certain stuff he doesn't need to be working on that I can do. And it's been a while since I mixed stuff. So right now I'm like getting really back into the fundamentals of audio mixing and stuff like that. So it'll be like, I kind of have scheduled out like Wednesday and Friday, eight to nine, I'm working on mixing or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, little stuff like that. I don't know. There's a bunch of little pockets of my life. I'm trying to, uh, I got into the habit of working on Spanish over quarantine. That was just one of those weird, like, like something you picked up. Everybody picked up something, you know, yeah. everybody was like baking bread one week. I know a lot of people who lost a bunch of weight, that sort of thing. So yeah. my thing was, I just started listening to, uh, Spanish podcasts. So I've got like, I forget what day. It's like Thursday morning or whatever. It's just like hour of Spanish, that sort of thing. So it's like really? my the most regimented part of my day is from like 7 a.m. when I wake up to 11 a.m. And then after that, it's basically try and get in the studio for a few hours. And then depending on how it's going, I mean, you can't force that kind of thing. So it's like go down, try for at least four hours. And if it's yeah. going well, that could last until I go to bed. Like that could yeah. be from like 11 to 9. It's usually not. It's usually that wraps up at like dinner or whatever like intensively so much, working and then it's hanging time, out which blurs how much time do you guys spend on like the music and the tracks and just like getting yeah it's a good question uh mostly because like the lines in our life are so blurred that mm -hmm. like i mean all our best friends are also our musicians so like when we're hanging out with our friends it's like half rehearsal or like editing session or composition or something like yeah. that. So it's hard to say. I'd say like intensive, deliberately sitting down to work on music. It's probably 40 hours a week. And then there's probably another 20, 30 that are like somewhere in a gray area where mm -hmm. it's like we're experimenting with something or we've got a weird idea for a video that we're just like rearranging the apartment for or something yeah. like that. Um, and everything ties, even like my hobbies are all music related to like, um, I'm working on restoring an old organ that we got kind of like weirdly gifted uh, and like rebuilding a guitar. So like my downtime is still kind of music related, even when it's not like into like sit down yeah. and work, work, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know. It's completely consumed our lives, I guess is the short answer to the question. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. For the music videos, how do you guys plan out like what, because each one is very different than the other, mm -hmm. and then some are produced or directed by someone else. And how yeah. does how does that all work? How do you decide? Oh, let's do this one ourselves. Let's let's mm -hmm. have someone else do this one. Or there's, I'd say there's kind of two classes of music videos where there are ones we could call it like heavy production and light production. I suppose where okay. like the heavy production usually has at least some sort of script and like a very. Uh, well delineated concept okay do you know what i mean yeah so the there are very high concept videos and very kind of uh i don't want to say thrown together because we always take 
our time, but they're a little more improvisational. Where yeah. It's like we come up with a scenario more than or a uh, setting, okay. more than like a fully fleshed out emotional scenario. Yeah. Um, so it'll just be like, okay, we've got a location and we have some props, and we have the song and a crew. We kind of work with the same guys over and over yeah. again. Um, and then budget kind of delineates how much we're able to do with that. Okay. In terms of like lighting or multiple cameras or whatever, yeah. but um, yeah, so it's it tends to be either like there is a serious amount of investment or there's virtually none. Yeah. It's just good ideas. Yeah. Um, hopefully, well executed. Yeah, it's interesting. Does that answer the question? I'm not sure if I. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, it's like you have heavy production and then light production, and then the heavier production costs a lot more, and the lighter is right here, and you just decide. Yeah how to execute it it's, mm -hmm. it's cool yeah and cost a lot of time as well like you know time uh, yes. the trilogy thing that we just did uh, Newly and Playboy are out mm -hmm. uh, something to fix is coming next that's like months and months of scripting and like we had storyboards and stuff for that yeah. one so that's even uh, our stuff is never really that expensive I mean you do have to pay for a certain uh, production value but mm -hmm. it's mostly like most of the production value is talent um, rather mm -hmm. than like budget it's just we work with really killer people who have really good ideas and can yeah. like pull some shit together on a shoestring budget basically yeah or call in favors that kind of thing yeah so people people are more valuable than things absolutely and it's the yeah. best part of being an independent artist is if you don't I mean, some people will charge you for everything, but for the most part, if you're not making a lot of money, most other artists are willing to collaborate with you for free because they're interested in getting their product out there. Yeah. And if there's if there was a label who's willing to throw money at it, then they'll start charging you for stuff. But for the most part, people just want to work and make cool stuff and yeah, yeah, be seen. Sort of. I don't mean that in a selfish way, but it's you want to work with other talented people because yeah. you know they're going places and you want to go places too. So why mm -hmm. not? Right. Put our or, minds together. Yeah, and when I say be seen, like, I don't mean that everybody wants to be famous or whatever. It's just like, if you're making movies, you don't want to do that with no audience. You don't want to yeah. make a movie that nobody's going to watch. Yeah. You want at least some people to check it out and, like, see right. what you're up to, or it's kind of defeats the purpose, you know? I'm sure yeah. there's therapeutic value in making art on you. Like, it's fun to just make songs for yourself, but it's a whole another level of rewarding when you can share it with somebody and they appreciate it. Yeah. I imagine this will kind of be in that similar vein, but, uh, Describe the best day of your life. Best day of my life. Um, I suppose, I guess the, um, it's like every year or so we get to play a new, we get to play a show that's like bigger than the last one we did. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's strange because when I think best day of my life, I think like happiest, you know, but I suppose like when I think about a show day, it's mostly just like nervousness okay followed yeah. by relief it's not like joy yeah. or something like that so if that feels like kind of a strange answer but that is kind of like the most meaningful sorts of days where it's like the fulfilling yeah, yeah and there's this massive ones. crescendo of energy right where it's yeah. like rehearsals for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and it's like that everything gets busier and busier and busier kind of leading to this like singularity of activity yeah that is show day um and then you wake up and you just it's all hurry up and wait like you want to be at the venue but once you get there you're just like twiddling your thumb <laughs> yeah. and just like waiting for people to show up and then there's the whole question of like alright is the room actually going to fill up or yeah. you know how many tickets and you never find out you have no idea how many tickets you sold until the day of 
and they'll tell you how many pre-sales there were, but most people buy tickets like at the door or online the day of, and so you really have no, you can kind of like guess based yeah. on how well tickets are moving before the date, how things are going, but you basically have no idea until you're off stage <laughs> if you sold well, you know, yeah, it's yeah. just a crazy yeah, problem to have. Yeah, you the show, then they're like, oh, you guys sold out. Mm-hmm. Oh, you could have told us beforehand yeah. or something, yeah. yeah. And half the time you're unhappy with the amount of people in the room like 20 minutes before you go on you're watching the opening act or whatever and you're yeah. like uh, i hope this picks up and it yeah. usually does um if they're there to see you it usually picks up like right before you get on stage yeah. and so yeah it's a very precarious position to be in so what's been your favorite venue that you've played at oh metro's the best yeah um i like talia hall a lot too but it's i think we're just not quite big enough to make that room feel the way it should yeah. you know what i mean it always feels half empty because it is yeah um but we've also never headlined there. We've only opened for other bands. And so I think eventually we'll get the opportunity to do it ourselves. And I think, yeah. uh, you know, by then the time will be right for that sort of thing. And I'm really excited. Uh, but Metro also has a vibe. To, Lincoln Hall is great, too, just because the people are incredible. Yeah. Um, the Lincoln Hall Lincoln Hall and Shubas are like one ownership, and the people there are great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just gave you four answers to a question. that. And then you guys, so you guys one. are going to play at Concord. Mm-hmm. How's how's Concord as a venue? I haven't been there. I've never even been there. Really? Yeah, never set foot in there. All right. Because so we're scheduled to headline Concord. You've never been there. No. And uh, but because of COVID. I mean, that's how most yeah. shows work. I mean, especially when you're on tour. Like it's I've never yeah, been to the AE sure. Center in Pittsburgh or whatever. You yeah. just show up and yeah. Hmm. It's part of the gig, kind of is just not knowing what's going to happen. So this question, I'm I'm very curious about. What are the three most influential books you've ever read? Um, do you have a just any any topic like fiction, nonfiction, whatever? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's because you I, we had this conversation the other day where you like you like nuggets of wisdom, yeah. right? Um, from projects. So let me see if I can. So one, this is kind of a strange one. Um, it, because I'm not really an actor, uh, there's I think it's called On the Art of Acting or something like that. It's like this classic of acting. It's okay. by uh, Michael Chekhov, and it's it's very uh, it's kind of like meditative in a way. I don't know if you've ever done mindfulness meditation, um, where it's all about like being aware of things happening to you and kind of letting letting things I, happen to you without any ego sort of attached. I meditate every day. I don't know if it's Gotcha. I don't know what kind of meditation. I just do it. Sure. So, um, and so the book is a lot about. Um, the premise is kind of you need to be, you can't really fake your way through acting. Like you can't just be like, oh, I'm gonna look sad. You have to convince yourself that you're actually sad, and mm-hmm. then you will look sad. Sort of. I mean, kind of dumbing this down yeah. a little because it's a long book. But um, so it's the practice of like. I don't know, it's it's like that uh, meditation technique of paying attention to things that are happening to you, extended to slightly imaginary things. And so I don't, again, I don't really act that much, but um, it's a little like if you want to get good at something, you need to push yourself just up against where uh, you're starting to like, screw up a little. Like maybe you, okay. if you're trying to learn a piece um, before the concert, you play it a little too fast where it's not so fast that you're totally falling apart, but you're staying on that like edge of like proximal development. Do you know what I mean? Okay. And so I feel like it did adding that weird, like extra creative element to the act of just being mindful of your surroundings 
I feel like expanded my ability to be mindful of my surroundings even when I'm not acting. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I found that really interesting and that one, that's one of those where you like read a chapter and it screws with you for a couple of days. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, what, are three books, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, there's a very, um, there's a book called The Machiavellians by James Burnham, which is out of print and really, really rare, but you can find electronic versions of it. Okay. And it's... Uh, it's Machiavellians? Okay. It's a political science book, um, and the premise is... The first point the guy makes is basically every... Well, every political statement has a real meaning and a formal meaning. And the formal meaning... Well, the real meaning is what you're trying to accomplish, right? And then the formal meaning is what do you say in order to gin people's emotions up, basically. Okay. And so it makes this point with a couple things. It starts with a crazy, archaic, I think it's like a Dante's uh, Daemon Archaea, I think is the example, which is like a 500-year-old book, um, where it's like, presumably the book is about building an ethical government, but really it's about Dante's personal gripes with his political rivals and like what he's trying to accomplish. And they do the same with, um, I think they use like the Democratic Party platform from 1932 or something like that, okay. where it's like, and since it's detached from our reality, it's long enough ago you can just see that it's all just crazy flowery language. So part one of the points is like, um, if I say the phrase, we believe in the preservation of human life, I could be from, I could be uh, pro-Black Lives Matter, or I could be pro-life with that statement, right? right. You, there's no, it's not giving you any information about what I want to happen practically in the world. Yeah. It's just um, window dressing, basically. And so the point of the, the book explores a couple different thinkers who were very, like, kind of hard-nosed political scientists, but that was the big takeaway, was basically, and I've, now, once you read that, you're on, your, on the lookout all the time for, like, is what you're saying, does what you're saying have any measurable content? Like, what are your goals in a way, like, give me a, a number that we could reach? Um, mm -hmm. You know, like, um, not saying I disagree with this, I'm just using it as an example. Like, how much should teachers make? The answer to that question is always more. Mm -hmm. More is not a number, right? right? And so, I don't know, I just thought about it in terms of, like, practical political goals. I feel like a lot of people could use this information because I think people get worked up uh, about politics for silly reasons, basically. Okay, wait. Okay, let me digest this a little bit. Sure. So you read. Yeah, that was a lot. Sorry. So the book. It's an older book. It uses. Uh, it's older... maybe. So it uses an example that's five hundred years old. The book oh, okay. was published in maybe the forties, I think. Okay, but we're far enough removed where like. You get you, to you're not gonna like feel anything. Yeah, you you avoid or, the emotional content of today right. and being upset at Trump or whatever. It's uh, it's it, it actually I didn't notice this, but yeah, the the distance between when the book was published and now is very helpful. So there's distance, and then you learn about when people say something. There's like a real there's a real meaning, and then a, a formal is the way he yeah says it. So the book then does it teach you like how do you apply it after reading it mm -hmm. how differently can you apply it like? well there's no like practical guide necessarily to be like okay. ah this is bullshit and this is it's yeah. more just like you start asking yourself the question does this um like i said is there a way that qualitatively or quantitatively is there a way that we could measure the effect that you're looking for or what this person is doing 
you know, it's just you start thinking of politics in terms of concrete outcomes, mm-hmm. basically, rather than like what sounds good, I suppose. Is. Yeah. So, so in our world, world of um, sensationalism and headlines and clickbait, you can it can help you decipher like what's real and what's, what's yeah, not. or what not even what's real because something can be real and irrelevant. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so both what's actually uh, relevant, I guess, more than true, if that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah. an, I think you'd like it actually. I, I well, that's why I'm asking these questions yeah, yeah. about. It. Yeah. Okay. What's a third one? Uh, uh, this is not really a book, but I keep. I kind of have like a vague inf- interest in philosophy. Like I'm not really rel- well read. Excuse me. Um, but I keep getting kicked back to the like classics it's like every philosopher yeah. uh you know it's like if you start at marx and you think you're going to read marx it's like okay but marx uh is built on hegel so you got to go back and read hegel and then hegel's responding to kant so you got to go back and read kant and then kant is responding to uh aquinas who's responding to aristotle so i keep getting kicked back to the greeks okay. um and i recently did plato's apology which is um it's supposedly a transcript of Socrates's defense of himself while he was on trial for his life. Okay. And it's cra- first of all, it's crazy moving because I I was reading Plato and it's all very dry and like, is this what is the meaning of justice? Is yeah. this justice? Well, I don't know. What about this thing or whatever? It's all super dry. And then this, it's just a crazy like tour de force of um, oratory, I guess, and it's really affecting just on like a kind of mm. like a fictional level it's not well it's I'm semi-fictional at least um, possibly completely fictional but it's uh, very rousing and it's also I think every culture kind of gets to decide what it's sort of like creation myth is if that makes sense okay um, I don't know like I'd say the like the modern democratic party uh, the way it sees itself now is like as a um, it was born of the civil rights movement, right? Uh, the Democratic Party sees that as its best self and, like, kind of places that, like, ah, that was the moment that the Democratic Party became the Democratic Party that we recognize. Okay. Um, the Republicans are a little harder, maybe just because they've changed a lot more in the last couple of years. Like, the old Republican Party of, like, Bush and Reagan, that would be, like, maybe their creation myth is, like, Teddy Roosevelt, um, you know, yeah. the great white uh, fleet or whatever, this, like, show of American force, but also... Uh, you know, caring a lot about the homeland and mm. breaking up monopolies and stuff like that. Um, so I think every group kind of gets to pick its own creation myth. And not, when I say myth, I don't mean that it's false. I just it's just a nice turn of phrase. It's, creation it's, myth. Yeah, they get to tell how they get to um, decide how to tell their story and where that story starts. I think is very telling and can tell you a lot about a group. And I think it's very interesting because there were philosophers before Socrates. So we could start there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or you could start with Aristotle instead of Socrates, who's a little further along, right? But um, I think there's something telling about Socrates, who was uh, executed for just teaching people what he thought. Basically, he was executed for undermining the authorities uh, of Greece at the time. Okay. And I think there's something very telling about kind of... Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what it is. I just think there's probably something in that fact. Like that seems very poignant to me, that it 
whoever whoever the people are that made the decision that here's where we're starting philosophy were like no you need to learn this lesson like um first of all be careful because they might chop your head off <laughs> and also it's it's important that people are able to say shit that their uh, quote-unquote superiors don't agree with yeah right um and often those people who are uh rocking the boat are proven right by history so i think that's fascinating hmm. Do you ever think about um, the city of Alexandria and there was this library that mm-hmm. had like everything in it, right? And then it burned. Mm-hmm. How much do you think we don't know? I know. I've, it's like if you could, if I could change one thing about history, I would think real hard about that one. Yeah. Because it's even the stuff we have from people like Aristotle, like we know it's fragments because there are other works referenced in the surviving works where it'll be like see uh i don't know whatever metaphysics volume three and it's like that doesn't exist we don't have it so we know it we know there was one and like there's lots of uh especially for people older than socrates we've only got bits and pieces like literally lines because it'll be quoted by somebody who came later so we know they had the book they read it put it in their book but the original book is gone. Like, we have no idea what was in between the couple quoted things that are in there. So, yeah, I think you're totally right. I can't even imagine. Like, that might be the thing that you could do to change the course of human history the most drastically if you could change one thing. Yeah, Just probably, like, right? Let that burn down. Yeah, I think so. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Huh. And, the, and so much of that was lost from Europe for a long, during the Dark Ages, like, People just didn't have access to that literature, basically. So was that, it was, um, I don't know if this is true or not, but like during the Crusades, that's when Europe started getting more of these texts? I don't know, this is just going to be dumb outline sophomoric history because I'm not a history major. Uh, But yeah, from what I understand, most of it was kept by the Muslim world. Um, Basically, they just had a better sort of scientific slash intellectual culture at the time yeah. when Europe was going through the dark ages and so rather than burning books they would keep them and copy them mm-hmm. um, so a lot of what we have are basically like uh, you know Persian world copies of Aristotle yeah. and stuff and those were like the original when they were reintroduced to Europe they were because um, the Muslims had held on to them basically for us <laughs> yeah it's wild so what's something you're curious about recently uh here's a weird answer i'm i've been going deep on the history of chile (laughs) recently i'm fascinated no no the country chile sorry okay i should have been more specific Uh, it's about how you pronounce it that's why i was was (laughs) thrown off yeah Yeah, no i'm just being a gringo uh (laughs) chile uh which i'm not totally sure how i got there i think that's uh South America just has a really interesting political culture. Like, mm-hmm. it overlaps in so many ways with... Amer- like, they kind of have the same revolutionary history with a very strange, uh, like, sort of hierarchy, like, social hierarchy. Like, there's a lot okay. of um, old, arist- like, remnants of aristocracy down there that are interesting and, like, a heaping helping of Marxism that the United States doesn't really have. Um, okay. So, like, the whole 20th century was just bonkers for South America and then I realized I don't know anything about Pinochet who was the military dictator of uh, Chile in this like basically the entire 70s Um, and he's hard to find stuff on in English actually strangely 
which just seemed weird to me because hmm. he's an important figure in South American history. And so I just somehow that dragged me in this weird rabbit hole of Chilean history. <laughs> so now I'm reading about the Chilean revolution and stuff and it's bonkers. Was it, can you give me a summary of, of what you're learning? Um, the most interesting part, I mean, I, I'm kind of not interested in like the names and stuff. I'm never going to remember everybody. Yeah. Um, cause there's a ton of people involved, but like the, the thing that struck me the most was what I was talking about before. Is like there's this weird class architecture, sort mm -hmm. of, where when um, Chile was conquered, uh, you start, there's interbreeding between the European settlers uh, and native Mapuche is the largest like native group, or best known at least in Chile. Uh, and then you get this kind of loose caste system where it's like mestizos, um, including indigenous people or mixed people at the bottom, uh, what were called Creoles, which would have been Spanish-born, people of Spanish descent born in Chile, and then uh, Peninsulares, which are people from Spain, right? Okay. And so this weird caste system gets set up in early Chilean history that kind of never goes away. Although it's hard to, it's hard to tell if they're the same people or if we're just calling this like, well, there right. was an upper class then and a lower class then, and there's an upper class now and a lower class now, but they're, yeah. it's, it's hard to tell whether those two things are tied together. But that legacy seems to be a streak, an important streak in um, Chilean political history. And like Interesting. a lot of the, what would be called sort of like, uh, you know, blue blood population is very pro Pinochet who was like crazy right-wing authoritarian mm -hmm. um, and very had this very strange semi-capitalist economics sort of thing so but it's just like these you can see the threads from the 1600s up until the 1970s very distinctly wow. and it's fascinating yeah do you think you can of a lot of countries in the world you can see those threads from 1600s or before or just like throughout history and where they are now yeah I think it's hard to I mean, some countries, it's it seems less important, um, but there's always weird kind of remnants. Like, yeah. England still has a king and stuff, yeah. which is crazy. It's just like, but that's kind of trivial. Like, it's it's weird and it's mm -hmm. a goofy use of money uh, and stuff. It's kind of charming, but that one doesn't seem to affect daily like the fact that there's yeah. four aristocrats left in england doesn't necessarily seem to be like a major social force um whereas obviously somewhere more rigid like india or whatever like that caste system is ancient and mm -hmm. pervasive still um, mm. and again you don't know how much you're imagining like i was saying it's i'm not sure that there's a direct like a, a defensible direct line from old world aristocracy to new world aristocracy that's yeah. worth thinking about there's but so much to learn about the world that we don't <laughs> No it's ridiculous, it. man. Yeah. And that was part of the reason I got into this, too, is I just know, I kind of know the broad outlines of uh, a lot of the weird communist revolutions and stuff in South okay. America. And I, I, went, I went to Cuba a couple of years ago and, like, kind of did a deep dive into that sort of stuff. Interesting. And then realized, like, there's this almost perfect foil to it, which is Pinochet and his uh, kind of counter revolution um, that I didn't know anything about and needed to. I don't know. Felt the need to get into. Well, thanks for sharing that. I yeah, that. yeah. A little deep dive. I like that. Yeah, I told you it was a weird one. Getting back to Chicago a little bit, within the past five years of living here, what personal realization has improved your outlook on life the most? 
Uh, I don't know that this has improved my outlook, but it's improved my life, so I'm going to go with it. Okay. Which was... I'm not sure I'm going to have good examples of this, but um, I used to... Th- like, For me, the word fear was always very... It meant a very specific thing, like shaking in your boots, you know. Yeah. Um, and I realized one day that I think myself and also a lot of other people are just like living with fear in a lot of different ways, mm. which can manifest as a lot of different things where it's just like, oh, I don't want to go do that. Could be, uh, I don't want to go to that party because I'm afraid of being the only person I know or something like yeah. that. And so fear always felt like a an intense word for something like that. Like I'm not cowering in the corner because yeah. I don't want to go to the party. But I like there are sort of, you could say there are different varieties of fear, like anxiety or trepidation or like terror or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's just like some, a lot of things that kind of live in that category, I, I noticed were like running my life a lot more than I wanted to. Okay. And I, I think I noticed this like two or three years ago. And again, it's not, I don't have a formula for this. It's not like I'm perfect at sussing this out in my own life. It was just like once I became uh, awakened to the possibility that this might need to be something I need to pay attention to in order to like fully actualize that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just started paying a lot more attention to it and kind of noticing it in strange ways. So is it being aware of, oh, in this moment, I'm why am I thinking negatively or, mm-hmm. or frightened by this? And then just in that moment, changing your attitude towards something yeah, that you're afraid of? Or? If you can kind of call yourself out for being scared, if it's like, I don't want to go uh, play sports with my friends because I'm bad at softball, uh, that might manifest me as like talking about how softball is stupid and adults shouldn't play softball. And if you would just admit to yourself, no, you're afraid, you idiot, and then you can talk yourself, because then you're like, well, shut up, asshole. Go, don't be afraid. Don't be ridiculous. So you I feel like... Mean? I feel like this is something that happens to everybody, Damn. and 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 you're right. It like it bleeds over to so many different things, and, and like bartending, I overhear conversations, mm-hmm. and it's like they'll say something about this, but really, there's something way deeper that, mm-hmm. and it's just manifesting itself in this form. Yeah, or it's crazy. I see so many people who are just. I mean, this is kind of cliche, but just like stuck in, there's a part of their life that they absolutely hate and for whatever reason can't extract themselves from. Like a bad job is the most common example probably. There's a paycheck that they're tied to. Um, But also there's just the fear of looking for something else. Like you might, you might have to learn a bunch of stuff and it's gonna be, you know, painful in a manner of speaking uh, to have to go through that and also kind of like burn off whatever sense of identity you have connected to this job like if it's a high status job for instance mm-hmm. um, you're going to lose that like I think yeah the, I think the main thing that keeps people uh, ensnared is fear basically and when I realized I always kind of knew that about other people but then I realized it about myself uh, mm. and that, that hurts. helped a lot oh it was not fun <laughs> oh man yeah that's why I said uh, I forget exactly how the question was asked oh, it didn't improve my outlook but it did improve my life um, it did so, improve my outlook I, but you know it's a kind of a pessimistic thing to notice so what were the first things you did like to take action on it I don't remember I think it tied into I talked about this uh before where it was just like what are you 
what are you not doing? Like, there's that thing that lives in the back of my head. And I've gotten into the habit of asking myself that. I, I For a while, I printed out a note card and had it on my dresser. But after, you just stop seeing that stuff after a while. But I, it was, what are you avoiding doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, like, my little anxiety mantra. Where it'd be like, if I, you know, I just, I just neglected to get a new headlight for my car for, like, three months. You know, mm-hmm. why? Uh, I don't think that one was fear. But there's, like, some weird hump that I'm not yeah. getting over. Or it's like, uh, if you've ever... Like I was, I've been meaning to make a doctor's appointment for like three months. And so you set that date, you're like, I'll make the call on Tuesday. And then you don't make it on Tuesday. And then the further along you get, the more it's like, oh no, it's too late. You're just like talking yourself into these weird excuses for not doing the thing that you're leaving undone. And so, you know, what's what's weird in my experience is like, now that I think about it right now, like I really don't have much of this problem right now, but for a long time, I would, like, write something in my planner, like, mm-hmm. Tuesday. Oh, do this. Yeah. And then it just, like, it shows up. That one thing mm-hmm. shows up in my planner week after week after yep. week after week after week after week. And it's it's always on my mind. Mm-hmm. It's more painful to have it on my mind than to actually exactly. do it. Yeah, this is exactly what I was talking about. There's that thing that's just, like, nagging yeah. you. In the, and it's not conscious it's not like ruining every second of your life there's just it's like the noise floor or like the kind of like ambient anxiety that you're living with is just higher than it should be and that can push you into a threshold like above the threshold that's tolerable if if you have something actually uh dire happen Mm -hmm. that can push you from like being able to manage it to like i've never had a panic attack but i it's certainly possible that that could be the thing that just like pushes you over the edge and like full-blown mayhem Wow. Interesting. So, yeah, I'm very careful about that stuff now. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the flip side, what's something you're excited about over the next three years? Cool. Uh, the easy answer is I'm excited for music to come back. It'll be nice to play again. Um, I'm excited. I really like this part of my life. Uh, like, First of all, I, I have designed a life for myself that I don't have to do a whole lot of shit I don't want to do, which is awesome, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, the main anxiety people have, kind of like early 30s. Um, they are like feel like they're getting swept into careers that they're not interested or whatever. Um, <clears throat> but mine, I once had a friend, um, we were like, he's older than us, we were talking to him about getting older. We're like, how are your 30s, man? He's like, it's great. They're like my 20s, but with money. Um, and so that's what I'm excited about actually is like I've kind of stabilized a little being a musician is really difficult to make tenable financially you've got to do a lot of shitty jobs you don't want to work uh, I'm still going to have to do some of that I'm sure but I don't know I've, I feel like I've leveled off a bit um, and like I, like I said I've got a friend who just bought property and that's now starting to feel like a thing that might be on the horizon which is exciting mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's all just in the name of being able to make music indefinitely, you know, just like get yourself to a financial spot where you can kind of even your wings out or whatever. I'm mixing metaphors at this point, but, um, yeah. And I think, uh, the post COVID, whatever happens post COVID is going to be really interesting because whenever there's like a weird economic contraction and challenge watching how people over, like now we have all this technology that we've all mastered that we didn't have before. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all going to be better equipped for the world following. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm excited about. All right. Well, thanks for uh, sitting down with me today. We're here in your neighbor's place, but yeah, uh, thank you, Rich. It's been great. Thanks Absolutely. again.
Hell yeah. Thanks for listening to Rich Conversations. Again, you can follow Matt at Bone Lane and at Matt Bones DIY. Have a fearless day.